during these last few days, we've been moving in and around and through this delicate yet profound cultivation of forgiveness. With Vance and Amana and today's Dharma talks, they tilled the fertile soil, readying it for planting the seeds for your personal harvest. The wisdom that has been shared creates a pathway for compassion and real transformation. It's transformation of the heart-mind through the practices of forgiveness. Connecting with our internal and external senses, bringing loving awareness to forgiveness. Our full self here. There's a knowing that rests within the constellation of our hearts, asking the question, can I forgive? What is the capacity that I have to forgive? The personal stories and complexities and what's been warring in the heart-mind, the struggles, leads us into understanding a process that admittedly does not come easy or quickly and often does not appear as we had expected it to. We've begun the recitation of the forgiveness phrases for self, for those who've caused us harm, for those we may have harmed, each waking up to our humanness, our mistakes, our fumbling, our foibles, our grace in a very troubled and flawed world. We held up the candle to our hearts through the darkness to cultivate compassion. That compassion that's needed to face the suffering in all of its myriads of forms, disguises. We've had the opportunity to turn the mirror inward, looking at what it means to hold forgiveness with a fiercely light grip. In thinking about forgiveness for self and others and worldly conditions, there's an intimate realization that the prison of our minds will continue to hold us captive unless we peer through those cell bars for a way out of our internal suffering. Again, this is a process, it's not a destination. This afternoon, I'm going to speak about what happens when we let go into forgiveness. How do we gather a deep sense of joy and gratitude without turning away, looking, without seeing this remorse, the shrinking, the surrender, but seeing this is a blessing, this practice is a blessing, a blessing of action. Admittedly, this is a huge pendulum swing. Forgiveness, non-forgiveness, Forgiveness, not forgiveness. But if we slow down, not trying to rush it, find courage and faith, moving through the process is really the process of letting go. I ask the question, what's on the other side of joy and gratitude if not letting go? And then that formed another question for me. 
What's on the other side of letting go if not joy and gratitude? Ajahn Chah, who some of you may have heard his name, he's a Thai forest monk in Thailand. He's the teacher of many of our teachers, Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Kitasaro, Tanesara, Ajahn Sumato, amongst others. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Letting go is necessary to know true freedom. This feels like a universal truth. And yet there are those moments when fear and attachment and lack of trust keeps us gripped and holding on tight. Unwilling to release our constricted hearts and minds that keep us imprisoned. This mind state creates a void in an overall awareness of the senses and our inability to know the subtle penetration of wisdom. Before the pandemic, I used to teach at um, various prisons in the Bay Area. San Quentin, Soledad State Prison, Dual Vocational in Tracy. And when I was with the men in blue, as we call them, not necessarily by name, I have always felt humbled and inspired by their deep commitment to practice. Each of them had their own sangha, and we would go in and teach with them and sometimes teach to them. I was inspired by their dharma and the unity within the sanghas and mostly with their vulnerability. Many of them have been practicing for years. I know their names I don't necessarily know their stories. But sense, what I can sense is their devotion to the Buddha Dharma. Within the container of their Sangha, I have witnessed their loving kindness as practice. Each greet each other, black, white, Asian, Latinx, mixed race. All of them greet each other with the warmth of brotherhood a sacred community formed out of the common themes of finding peace and restoration while living out their lives in prison. Once outside the room where the movable altar is and their cushions and their incense, their day-to-day lives continue in separation. But in that sacred space, They can let down, they can let go. Lean into a full expression of peace. When I've heard them speak of their experiences of freedom and joy and permanence, I've come to see that to be in prison doesn't have anything to do with your location or your cell or even the blue garments that they have to wear but rather an obstructed mind. Being a guest in their home has taught me that a mind that is laden with doubt 
and regret and anger and a heart that is closed to the knowing of liberation and forgiveness will be locked, unable to breathe the fresh air of freedom. And sometimes when I've left, and when I'm, some of you may know where San Quentin is, it's right very close to the San Rafael Bridge, and then as I've gotten onto the bridge to go home to the East Bay, I've posed the question to myself, who's freer? Are they freer than I am, even though I can walk outside these gates? Is there a possibility for redemption? Can we reconcile with the harm we've caused others and find peace? Here's a quote. In spiritual life, there is no room for compromise. Awakening is not negotiable. We cannot bargain to hold on to the things that pleases us while relinquishing things that don't matter to us. A lukewarm yearning for awakening is not enough to, to sustain us through the difficulties of letting go. It's important to understand anything that, we can, that can be lost was never truly ours. Anything that we deeply cling to only imprisons us. And that's a quote from Jack Cornfield. A lukewarm yearning for awakening is not enough to sustain us through the difficulties involved in letting go. What does it take to release ourselves from a gripping mind? What are the conditions that are required to sit with disappointment, pain, anger, without being swallowed up by the repeated repeated cycle of, of suffering? When faced with having been harmed by another, how does one's heart rebound without wanting to react with return fervor? That eye for the eye. In one of the suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya 2.21, if anyone wants to look it up, the Buddha said this, These two are fools. Which two? The one who doesn't see their transgression as transgression and the one who doesn't rightfully pardon another who has confessed their transgression. These two are fools. These two are wise. Which two? The one who sees their transgression as transgression and the one who rightfully pardons another who has confessed their transgression. These two are wise. I mean, these are words that go back 2,600 years. Is it true today? In Pali, I was really curious about, you know, there's so many translations to words, and I really like looking at the definitions and so forth. So I started to look in a lot of the text to find out what was the Pali word for forgiveness. And the word is kama. K-H-A-M-A. And it's also translated as the earth. A mind that is like the earth, which also includes all of the elements, is typically a mind that is non-reactive and unperturbed. 
So if we combine the wisdom of seeing our transgressions or harms or missteps or mistakes as reconcilable, then the gateway to letting go is within our reach and possibility. There's a felt sense of how the mere act of letting go is the purification of the soul. If our minds are closed, we can't see what even imprisons us. If our hearts are closed, we can't feel the immeasurable joy that arises when we glimpse, just merely glimpse, liberation, peace, freedom. If we can't let go into peace, loving kindness, joy, and forgiveness, we stay holding on to this dukkha, this suffering, and all of its associated painful experiences. Again, this is not easy. We're not saying that we, you were going to come here for five days and leave as if you had a toolbox with all of the answers. It doesn't happen simultaneously. It's a process. And it may not provide you for what exactly what you want, but what we've been speaking about all week is that it will provide you with what you need. It's a starting point for most and maybe a place of continuing for others. When a heart-mind like earth, water, fire and air, and all of those elements that engulf us. When the heart-mind understands that, then they understand that nature is receptive and reciprocal. It's the embodiment of that spirit that we are looking to indwell in. The tendencies that usually afford the mind to hold tight, hold on, and grip identifying with suffering and the adversive memories, these tendencies and patterns and behaviors, when we walk in this other indwelling place, they begin to loosen and soften like last night, the heart softening. And they make space for recognizing the practice for what it really is. The practice of forgiveness is purification. It's a path of purification. Tanessa Obiko, who is a, another scholar and a translator of many of the Pali canon, he has written, we should forgive one another and wash away that stain from our hearts. Why? Because otherwise it turns into animosity and enmity. The act of forgiving is called the gift of forgiving. It turns you into that sort of person who doesn't hold on to things, doesn't carry things around doesn't get caught up in things, the sort of person that doesn't bear grudges. Even when there are missteps and mistakes from time to time, we can forgive one another. We should have a sense of love, affection, and kindness around everyone as much as we can. This is called anupakato. It's a part of our training as Buddhists both for householders and for contemplatives. 
So at some point, that statement seems a little simplistic. You should just forgive. Wash the stain away from your heart. But for me, when I read it, it called up something so vivid in my memory. And that was the image and the selfless words of Nelson Mandela, an anti-apartheid lawyer who was unjustly imprisoned for 27 years in Robbins Island in South Africa, who upon his release became president of South Africa, taking an entire nation through a truth and reconciliation process. And he famously said, as I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. He also said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping that it will kill your enemies. And he also said, forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That's why it's such a powerful weapon. And he also said, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Indeed, those words are imprinted in my mind heart. But the image of the joy in his face. Through the creases and the gray hair and the the lines that he had to, in just living 27 years in prison, all of that framed his face. But what I saw and feel is a man who truly experienced the immensity of grace, gratitude, and joy. I believe that forgiveness freed him, freed his heart. So I ask the question again, what's on the other side of joy and gratitude if not letting go? What's on the other side of letting go if not joy and gratitude? So as we begin to explore the impact of freedom, of forgiveness on our souls and our psyches and our hearts and minds, we can see that it points to the practice of mindfulness, sati, by using our moment-to-moment awareness to witness when the closure of our minds occur, the gripping of our hearts occur due to our conditioned lives. The gnawing of fear and all these places of witnessing that have become a mechanism for us. Choosing wisdom and compassion. You know, those two wings we talked about. carefully peels away the habitual layers of reactions enabling us to feel the resonance of forgiveness, but actually feeling the resonance of forgiveness as a gift. One of the Brahmaviharas that (laughs) has really benefited my practice is, and it's still going on and on, is the practice of mudita the third Brahma Vihara. 
it's known as sympathetic or altruistic or empathetic joy. It's the teaching of gladdening of the heart for the happiness and joy of others. That's kind of what I felt when I looked. I remember seeing the day that Nelson Mandela walked out of prison. It was on television. And then I had the fortune to be able to he did a United States tour, and I was able to get on a BART train, go all the way to the Oakland Coliseum. I think I was living in another part, near, not very close to Oakland. And I took my son, and we packed into this BART train. I mean, we were just like sardines, and we could never do that now with masks on. But I, we packed in, and we got to the Coliseum, and it was just packed. It was outdoors. And there walked this man who was tired. You could see the fatigue and the worry on his face and in his body. But then when he hit the microphone, there was joy. This practice of mudita, being able to see someone else's joy, feel the joy, it's challenging. It's a challenging practice. And it's a practice that still leaves me raw and ragged sometimes. And especially when I think about it in terms of my own fragile heart. The Buddha has said many times that once the states of mind that have been discovered and developed through the Brahma Viharas, that they naturally radiate outward infusing not only the meditator's state of consciousness from the view of these newfound windows of the world, but pervading the environment of all sentient beings around. This is energy in its interplay. Joy. What's on the other side of letting go? By transforming our inner perspective, by seeing that amidst the 10,000 sorrows, there really are 10,000 joys, we can begin to celebrate the heart's capacity to embody joy and gratitude. We can source our life spring much more easily from that place. By awakening our minds, we have the opportunity to know from the roots of our joy Where does it come from? The roots, the genesis, the grounding. Again, freeing our minds as the earth, as all the elements, unperturbed and non-reactive. We are here at this retreat to not only cultivate the practice of choosing forgiveness, but we're here to look at the courage to actually to forgive. Needing to pull back those layers that have hardened us and held us for so long. Thich Han has written, 
Buddhism teaches us that joy and happiness arise from letting go. Please sit down and take inventory of your life. There are things you've been hanging on to that really are not useful and deprive you of your freedom. Find the courage to let them go. It's a practice. It's worth cultivating. It's the holding on where I have suffered the most. You know, we all come to this practice for many reasons. We came to this retreat for a variety of reasons. I came to this practice to find out the true nature of my mind and to deal with the years of suffering that I didn't even know. Some I knew, some I didn't know. But it wasn't until I sat my first POC retreat, People of Color retreat here at Spirit Rock, and the multitude of other retreats that I've sat, that I was able to find out and understand the depth of what I had been holding on to. The suffering. The dukkha. It had become a part of my life. Abuse, fear, secrets, lovelessness, betrayal, expectations, imperfections, all the ways I had allowed my joy to be dampened, my gratitude for living to be overlooked because as many, I was just merely holding on, trying to survive, like that picture of the cat just hanging on. And possibly, like much of you, when I was asked, how are you? I'm okay. All's right with the world. It became my survival mechanism. I was smiling with a broken and fractured and closed heart. It was in that moment of realizing my suffering and how I had been living in and with suffering for so long that I realized I had the capacity and the opportunity and the ability to begin the letting go process. Little by little, not all at once, step by step, the process not the destination. There's a story that was really graciously given to me by today, 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 the very first day we were here, we were kind of comparing notes. So she gave me this story from um, Asuta, and it's about the tale of two monks and a woman. Sounds kind of like, you know, three guys going to a bar, but no, this is actually two monks and a woman. Two monks were traveling together, a senior and a junior. They came to a river with a strong current where a young woman was sitting, unable to cross alone. 
She asked the monks if they would help her cross the river. Without a word, and in spite of the sacred vow he had taken not to touch women, the older monk picks her up, crosses, and sets her down to the other side. The younger monk joins them across the river and is aghast that the older monk had broken his vow, but doesn't say anything. An hour passes. And as they travel on, then two hours, then three. Finally, now quite agitated, the younger monk can can stand it no longer. Why did you carry that woman when we took the vow as monks not to touch women? The older monk monk replies, I set her down hours ago by the side of the river. Why are you still carrying her? Not forgiving the people that have hurt us or harmed us or had mistakes or missteps. And I'm not talking about some of the deepest types of of pain and hurt. There's a way in which we begin to heal our wounds. We carry extra baggage all the time that's not even ours. We pack our bags. I remember just recently I came to a retreat here And it was a 17-day concentration and awareness retreat. So I came and I had a rolling bag and another little case. And when I finally set everything down in my room, I came into the hall, I found my spot, and I realized that I had really carried another duffel bag with me. It was worry. It was my bag of worry. And I was unable for quite some time to unpack it. But that started to weigh me down. It weighed on my shoulders, as many of the bags we carry do. It started to sap my energy. It started to create the proliferation of my mind, constantly thinking about the future and what I had to do, and this was my bag of worry. It slowed down the process and the progress that I was here to actually cultivate. And at some point, it kind of convinced me that I maybe should never have come at all. Until I really had some guidance that I needed to. And this was the most profound teaching of the entire 17 days. That for all the times in which I said yes, and I was carrying all these bags of worry, and all the things I had to do, I was guided into actually forgiving myself for the process of how I had said yes to so much and how I was really feeling blame. I was putting blame onto myself. And once I was able to unpack my bags, I was able to sit and center and calm myself. Again, Ajahn Chah says, 
we practice to learn how to let go, not how to increase our holding on to things. Enlightenment appears when we stop wanting anything. In Pali, the word for clinging is called panha, T-A-N-H-A. And it's translated in English as the unquenchable thirst. So as we are holding and gripping and craving and wanting and not able to let go, we never quite get satiated. We never quite get freed. The Buddha has a discourse that describes the impossibility of true realization if we live without the quality of gratitude. When one lives without gratitude or touches into that quality, one's mind is unable to experience the depth of concentration and stillness. That interconnection between our practices. This doesn't mean that a person possesses an unendeemable heart or one walks around devoid of depth or mindful consideration. It speaks to a person's inability to muster up the mental state of insight and deep awareness that is transcendent on how we move and stand in our complex world. Gratitude is indeed a foundation for a settled and clear mind. And I think that I would also add here a settled and clear and calm heart. The quality, the qualities of gratitude also brings about a bright mind, a forgiving mind, and a balanced and reflective mind. And I know you may have experienced that here as you've been practicing. If there is a, a sense of being really laden down and you know, maybe not even seeing the feeling grateful for the rain, possibly other than that it's maybe a burden I'm getting wet. But seeing how much the earth is drinking it up, sensing that that type of gratitude, it really enlivens us. It allows our minds to become much more more open and, and pliable, able to receive more. being conscious of the time. I have so much I've written. In turning our attention to what I'm grateful for today, or yes, the world is a mess, but I'm grateful, may seem like rose-colored glasses. Oh, it's so beautiful out there. And although sometimes it isn't. But as I mentioned before, dwelling in a state of gratitude opens the door to a different, just a different state of brightness, concentration, aliveness, awareness, stillness. The sense of well-being coupled with wholesome states of mind allows for peace and calm to really enter in. 
that we can embrace, we can actually sit with it. The idea of resting back. Not this way. This is really stressful. The anticipation, the hardening, you know. Resting back. Breathing. The shifting of our minds and hearts to a place of joy and gratitude. It takes the courage to let go, finally. As Ajahn Chah said, when you let go completely, you have complete peace. And in the letting go, there is the renunciation and the relinquishing of all the inner narratives that had helped us in the past. They've become comfortable for us. All the naysaying, all the critic, all the things that keep going on, all the rumination, all the papancha, all the thinking, all the thoughts. Our minds and hearts are constantly being challenged to live with the consistency of change, the state of impermanence. Remembering to remember is the cornerstone of cultivating a mind of gratitude. Just now, just remember. Remembering to let go as a daily practice strengthens our heart muscle that then develops a moment-to-moment mindfulness awareness and the cultivation of patience and presence. Remembering to remember how our hearts can be gladdened by this practice will begin to bring us to a consciousness so incredibly rich. Our path towards happiness and peace is obtainable. The Buddha is known for being a physician, great physician. He was able to diagnose the ills of the world, suffering. He was able to then, he named it, and then he was able to work with it and prescribe the medicine, which was the Eightfold Path. So as part of his prescription, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, gratitude, forgiveness, all our companions all link up together. They're interconnected to us. But it's a choice of how we choose to walk in the world with that state of mind and heart. Gratitude blessings are done many wisdom traditions. In Tibet, the monastics offer prayers of gratitude for the suffering they have been given. Grant that I I might have enough suffering to awaken in me 
the deepest possible compassion and wisdom. Can you imagine asking for that? But the outcome of that is so much broader. Letting go into joy and gratitude is really touching into the sweetness and the depth of the gift of forgiveness. What's on the other side of joy and gratitude if not letting go? What's on the other side of letting go if not joy and gratitude? So I'm going to end with a poem by one of a favorite poets of mine, Dana Fouds. It's called It Is Enough. It is enough right now to taste one moment of peace. Of course I want more, but at least the door is open. It is enough to draw a conscious breath and let my hands relax. Fingers releasing from their tight grip on things outside of my control. It is enough to shed a layer of stress as if taking off a jacket or a pair of too tight shoes. Ease of being has to start somewhere. This breath is my first step. Thank you, Sangha, for your kind attention. Let's just sit for one moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.